0: Well, we're back in our series in Genesis, talking about the promises of God and Abraham, uh, the great patriarch of the faith, and looking at Abraham in his stumbling, as well as his faithfulness to the Lord. And we continue today talking about his chosenness, his chosenness as the father of a people, the father of nations and multitudes. And, if you recall, two weeks ago, he had some strange guests visit him in Genesis chapter 18. And those strange guests, three people, were no ordinary men. Now, people are not sure exactly who they are. In places, they're called men. In places, they're called angels. In places, the Lord himself speaks to Abraham. And yet, these men certainly are from the Lord. They certainly are from the Lord, and they speak for the Lord, if they are not, in fact, the Lord himself speaking. And so we see today that God's promise persists. And even with Sarah's doubt that we talked about two weeks ago, with her hidden laughter... God's promises persist. We were also given insight last, or two weeks ago, rather, by the fact that in Genesis 18:13, the Lord speaks and prophesies. That is, He says, sets forth the fact that He knows the heart of Sarah. Right? He knows that she laughed inwardly, and so today we pick up with Abraham walking with these strangers whom he's entertained towards the city of Sodom. Open with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 18, beginning with verse 17. It's in your order of service, or you can open to it in your Bible. But the first verse that I want to start with today is actually not in your order of service. It's verse 16. In your Bible. So Genesis chapter 18 verse 16. Then the men set out from there and they looked down toward Sodom and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. We'll stop there for the moment. As we pick up with this story with Abraham, we see Abraham traveling with these three men towards Sodom. And this is a really important passage in Scripture. It's actually not all about Sodom and Gomorrah. That's going to be next week. This passage is actually about three things. God's righteousness... God's justice, and our duty to do both. God's righteousness, God's justice, and our duty to do both. The author assumes that we're already familiar with the setting, and yet he briefly reiterates it, right, in that passage, what's gone on, what promises have been made to Abraham. Abraham, the great patriarch, The father of nations, peoples, multitudes by God's promise, that's reiterated, that that's going to be, that that's a certainty. But why does God choose to reveal what he's about to do to Sodom? The text tells us, did anyone catch it? Why does God choose to reveal to Abraham what he's going to do to Sodom? Look specifically here at verse 19. Why does he choose to reveal this to Abraham? Anybody? Because Abraham is going to be the father of a great nation, right? He's going to be a great nation. Let's read it together. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So do you see there's more? Yes, he's chosen him to be this great nation, but why is he revealing this to him? Because they're supposed to be a light to other nations. That's true. That's true. But you're jumping too far. Just look at the text. What What does the text say? You're not wrong, but, but you're jumping ahead. So that Abraham may teach, right? Is that what it says, right? I have chosen him that he may uh, command, rather. Do you see that? That he may command his children and his household after him to do what? Keep the way of the Lord. Thank you. Now we're reading the text. Do you see how often as Christians we get off the text? We jump to theological things, which aren't wrong, notice, but it's important to stay on the text, right? So he reveals this, to Abraham so that he might command his children and his household, these nations, in the way of the Lord. And specifically, the way of the Lord is what? Righteousness and judgment or justice, right? Judgment or justice. Righteousness here um, is translated righteousness here. It's actually a Greek word, tasaka. To said aka, And it means righteousness But it also means virtue innocence Uprightness and it's particularly about the inward justice of the soul So this type of righteousness that we're talking about is internal It's about righteousness of the heart or righteousness of the soul Right, that's why in English these words uh, kind of meld together. Righteousness, justice, judgment, right? But here we're talking about inward uprightness, moral uprightness, righteousness from the Hebrew. And what is the next word? Justice, right? This is from the Hebrew mishpat. Mishpat. It literally means lawful. And this is an external justice. It is a justice towards other people. It is also to have good judgment, right? Because if you're just to other people, you have good judgment as to the situation. This is really important because this is what this text is all about. Righteousness and justice. And indeed, our duty to do both as God's chosen people. So God wants Abraham and his descendants to be morally upright, to be righteous. He also wants them to make good judgments, to be just. Why? Again, the second half of verse 19. Why? Why? So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. It's that simple. God has covenanted and chosen Abraham with his offspring, covenanted with Abraham and his offspring, rather, but knowledge and free will determine how much they're going to be blessed. Knowledge and free will determine how much they're going to be blessed. You see, God does not force moral uprightness nor does he force good judgment upon his people. God chooses us, that's true, but he doesn't force these things upon us. Rather, God uses the faculties that he created within us to learn and to become, be transformed into his image, to be righteous and just. And he gives us his Holy Spirit so that we're able to do that. Now, look at verses 20 through 21, because we see that God is going to teach Abraham with this passage. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. That passage, outcry, the outcry of the sin of Sodom. The Hebrew there is zok. And it's literally to cry forth or to cry out. It's a good translation. All sin cries out for God's judgment and justice. The word here is the same word that's used when Abel. Do you remember Cain and Abel? Abel is killed by Cain in Genesis 4. And this is the word that's used in verse 10. And the Lord said to Cain, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The voice of your br- br- brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. That's Genesis 4.10. Scholar Gordon Wenham says that like the blood of Abel, unpunished sin cries out to heaven for vengeance. Why? Because sin hurts God's people. Because sin hurts God's creation. And because of God's love, this sin cries out to him to be made right. And Sodom and Gomorrah's sin is especially grave. Apparently, Abraham already knows this too. Look at verse 23. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? You see, there's no argument from Abraham that indeed Sodom is wicked, right? The word wicked here is morally wrong and criminal against God's law. And Abraham sees that they are wicked. But notice, next week we're going to see... What this wickedness is How the city of Sodom is both warped in their righteousness Their souls are naturally twisted by sexual desires of homosexuality and passions Let go amok But we're also going to see that they're unjust And that they actually want to violate the angels, but that's next week this week We see something else. We see their wickedness has gone up to God. And God is going to come down and judge them. And he wants Abraham to see this. So why does God come down? Of course, God already knows the extent of Sodom's sin. Like he's already known the lesser sin of Sarah's laughter in her heart at the prophecy that she's going to bring forth a son. Well, the reason that God comes down here is that God is teaching Abraham something about righteousness and justice, about tzedakah and mishpat. He is demonstrating to them, to Abraham, that indeed, as Psalm 44 verse 21 says, he knows the very secrets of our hearts. Abraham knows that, as to righteousness, that in total, internal ordering of the soul. Remember, he and all men and women stand exposed before God, and he's teaching him that to be a good judge of situations, to have mishpat, have justice, one cannot make just judgment, good judgment, that is, or execute justice exclusively on the reports of others. This is what the text tells us. And this is fundamental to the concept of law, whether it's human law or God's law. You see, God's teaching Abraham that he must come down and judge in person what's going on, just like a good judge will get to the heart of the matter. Because notice, God knows all things. It's not like he has to physically come down and look. So he's setting an example for Abraham. As St. Chrysostom writes, what is meant by the considerateness of the expression, I am going down to see? I mean, does God of all move from place to place? No, indeed. Does not mean this. Instead, as I've often remarked, he wants to teach us by the concreteness of the expression that there is a need to apply precise, precision rather, and that sinners are not condemned on hearsay and sentence is not pronounced without proof. God's coming down both to judge righteousness, the internal virtue, and justice. The external relationship of the Sodomites and Gomorrah, Gomorrians. And he has shown Abraham how he, as a father of nations, as a patriarch, is to instill this sense of righteousness and justice in his people. That he is to be like God in this. To thoroughly investigate and to argue for righteousness and justice. How Abraham is to avoid also the wickedness and the transgressing of God's law. You see, God is revealing to him the importance of all this and inviting him to do the same. Abraham knows God to be just. And so he follows this argument. Indeed, he follows God's teaching. Look at verses 22 and 23. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous in the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous... Who are in it. What's Abraham doing here? I've heard some people preach that Abraham is asking God for mercy. That's actually not what's going on here. Not at all. What's Abraham doing? Negotiating. Yes, he is. He is negotiating. And on what principle? Justice. Justice. Absolutely. Do you see where that's going on in the text? What is he saying? He's saying, God, you are a just God. You know all these things perfectly. Will you destroy the wicked and the righteous alike? What is that? That's an argument for justice. He's saying, look if there's 50 righteous people, it is completely wrong, God, for you to destroy 50 righteous people in the midst of the wicked. Do you see how this is an argument for justice? Now, he's going to probe God. Okay, how, just how far can I push it? How much... Righteousness and justice does God have? Look at the text. You know this story well. He goes from 50 to what? 10. And in fact, he goes beyond that. If you look at God's actions. Look at the very end of Abraham's intercession. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of the five? And will you destroy the whole city? I'm sorry. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of the five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke and he said to him, Suppose forty are found there. I'm sorry, I looked at the wrong verse. Let's look at verse 32. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of the ten I will not destroy it. And then look at verse 33. For we have to assume there's less than ten righteous men in Sodom. And the Lord went his way. When he'd finished speaking to Abraham... And Abraham returned to his place. Is the Lord going to destroy less than ten along with the wicked? What does the Lord do next? Where did the three men head? If you have an ESV Bible, it's staring you in the face with the, uh, the, the subtitle of chapter 19. To Lot's house. Why does he go to Lot's house? To rescue Lot and his family. There are less than ten righteous men in the city. And yet, the Lord is going to go rescue those people. Less than ten. Because why? He is just and righteous. He's not going to destroy the righteous along with the wicked even if it's one person left there. Do you see, friends, how this is an argument and a teaching all about righteousness and justice? It's an interesting argument because Abraham is not pleading for the wicked to be spared, but for the righteous. And yet he's hanging everything on God's righteousness, showing that he understands this teaching and that indeed the teaching, if not the execution, will be passed along to people after him. So in conclusion, what are we to take from this passage as the church and as individuals? Well, number one, God's law dictates what it means to be righteous and just, and nothing and no one else. You know, there's great confusion about this point in the church as well as outside the church. Human beings may, and certainly do, trick themselves into thinking that what is wicked is right and what is virtuous is wicked. Human beings think that they can define what is justice and what is not justice or what is righteousness and what is not righteousness. Let's not miss this basic point that the church And her sons and daughters must be on their guard and Not take what those around them say is good Necessarily to be good and not take what is around them What is popular opinion and what that says to be righteous or just to be just But to vet these things rather against divine law What is good? What is just? What is wicked? What is evil? You see both we as individual human beings like to warp this Because as I told our confirmation class earlier, we like to try to fashion God into our own image But societies also like to do this Because societies and governments sometimes get a God God complex They sometimes think that they can determine what is righteous and what is just But notice, divine law supersedes any human law. Divine law supersedes any human law. And so, just because people in a a democratic society decide to vote something to be right or righteous, or to elect something to be just, or to have their courts declare something to be righteous and just and good, does not mean that in fact, actually is. Recently, we've seen that time and time again. People in our democracy, in our republic, see and feel one way, and because of that, that sight or that feeling, they require law to be changed so that they feel better about themselves. They cover this maneuver by freedom and rights. And claims to that. And they write into civil law that which is evil. And they declare to the culture that which is evil to be good. Whether it's the lie of gay marriage, or whether it's the right to abortion, or whether it's the right to own a human being as a piece of property, as it was 150 years ago in this nation. Human governments have no such power to declare these things right or just Though they might have all the trappings of legitimate law though. They might have judges standing behind them This law is nullified because it is not subject to God's divine law Or rather because it is subject to God's divine law, but not consistent with it Notice, as 16th century Anglican theologian and political philosopher Richard Hooker says in the Ecclesiastical Laws, For what good or evil is there under the sun? What action correspondent or repugnant unto the law which God hath imposed upon his creatures? But in or upon it doth God work according to the law which himself hath eternally proposed to keep. That is to say, the first eternal law. You see, friends, we as a culture, and not just us alone in history, stand in a place like Sodom and Gomorrah stood. We have diverged from God's divine law in our human law. We are incurring his wrath and will. As Sodom and Gomorrah is going to demonstrate next week, neither human governments or city-states 2,000 years B.C. or human governance and governments in 2000 A.D. have the authority to define what is righteous. Nor do we have the authority to define what is just. Nor do we have the de- authority to re- define what is right. The judicious Richard Hooker goes on to suggest repentance and humility. The church and her members, as citizens of heaven and as citizens of their nation, have a duty to pray for, to advocate for, to vote for positions and their representatives that are most in alignment with God's divine law. We have a duty to do that and to discern what that is. That's why judgment and justice and discernment about these things are so important. It's part of our call to righteousness and justice. That we look to the Bible, that we see what God has said, and that we look to the church and see what the definition of these things are. Not what's defined by the general will or the spirit of the age or the people around you or whatever popular jurisprudence says. Notice, if that was the case, then... Dred Scott might still be the law of the land here in the United States and you might still be able to own as property a slave. The state is not the church, but the nation still must abide by divine law because all law is derived from it. Likewise, each individual of the church must seek to live righteously and justly in his or her own life Within the church and outside of it. As Abraham has learned, God sees what's going on in your mind. As the psalm says, He knows the secrets of your heart, both the most wicked sins that you think about and do, and the most virtuous and righteous acts you as a Christian can do. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, Jesus says that we are to pray and give in secret for your father in heaven who knows what goes on in secret will reward you. Genesis 18:19 friends is still in effect. There is nothing that has changed with the moral law. To keep the way of the Lord still means to do justice and to be righteous and to add from Micah to love mercy those in the church are saved by God's grace. We've welcomed and received Jesus Christ as our Lord, but we're also called to walk in obedience to God and in righteousness and justice with one another. When we look at our 1 Corinthians passage, St. Paul's res- rebuking the Corinthian church for their sexual immorality, their arrogance, and their boastfulness. He also gives instruction at the end of the passage. Remove the one From among you, who is openly doing these things? St. Paul is not saying that the church should not welcome sinners or help people who desire to repent. That's not his message. But what he's saying is the church must draw clear lines and proclaim very clearly and precisely what laws God has established to define sin, to define justice, and then to offer mercy and repentance. How many of us have heard the oft-repeated refrain in the church, well, I cannot judge, or we're not supposed to judge. What Bible are such people reading? What Bible are such people reading? Within the church, indeed, we are to judge, and judge very precisely. When Jesus says in Matthew 7, judge not, lest ye be judged, he's not talking about his people. The church. He's talking about condemnation. Look at 1 Corinthians, our second lesson, verses 12 and 13. It's on page 3 in your order of service. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? St. Paul, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. What St. Paul is saying is the exact opposite of what most American Christians say. He's saying that in order to be a church that follows God and desires to keep the ways of righteousness and judgment, or justice, you need to uphold righteousness. And justice, with judgment. Then look at verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Not even to eat with such a one. Do you see, this harshness is directed towards the one who's called brother or sister. Why? Because injustice and unrighteousness, wickedness, quickly spreads within the church. Because it's our natural, fallen human nature to want to desire and go along with it. So St. Paul is not saying that we shouldn't welcome the repentant here. That's not what he's saying at all. But he's saying that righteousness and, judgment and justice become quickly perverted when people offer a cheap grace or ignore sin with a wink and say, yes, we will come down on this sin, but leave this one alone. Notice, he's not just talking about sexuality here, but greed, idolatry, reviling, and drunks and swindlers or thieves. The church must be very clear that these things are not welcome in her, but are to be repented of and left behind, along with sexual immorality. We are to be a community that is different, for though we are to advocate for divine law in our nation, our state, and in our city, Things that are in accordance with divine law that is, not not theocracy, don't hear that, that's not what I'm saying But things that are in accordance with God's divine law, though we are to advocate for those things We are so the more to advocate for them and seek to be in them as we're in community within the church The church is to be different from the world, a community set apart, a community that people can go to and flee to from the corrupt world so that they might be saved, so that they might experience God's mercy as well as his justice, so that they might see the depth of that mercy and grace. I love the hymn that Brian picked today for our offertory. Look at it with me, the text. There is a wideness in God's mercy, and we'll end with this. There is a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. There is a kindness in his justice, which is more than liberty. There is welcome for the sinner and more graces for the good. There is mercy with the Savior. There is healing in the blood. Friends, let us see and discern God's righteousness, his justice see clearly our duty to advocate for it and rest in the grace of his mercy. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.